Uh, if we could all find our ways in our Bible to 1 Samuel, that's where we're going to uh, move into uh, into the Word today. But I, I, I want to take a, just a couple of minutes to set the tone for what we're going to do. When we get into 1 Samuel, we're going to do a case study today, all right? Uh, and I'll, I'll explain why and what that means, and, and you'll, I think, find some value in it today by the time we get into 1 Samuel. But to do that first, I want to just set the tone. So... We have been studying spiritual disciplines for, for the last little while. In fact, we've been in a series called Rule Your Life. We, you might remember if you were with us at the beginning of the series, we talked about what a rule of life is. A rule of life is a framework for a way of living in, in, as a disciple of Jesus. It's a framework for how you live in the way of Jesus or as a Christian. Uh, because you can't just live in the way of Jesus by you know clenching your spiritual muscles and going, I'm going to live perfectly all the time. We practice spiritual disciplines to help us live more and more over time the way Jesus would live if he were wearing your shoes and living in your house and being in relationship with the people you are in relationship with. So the rule of life is the framework that we apply spiritual disciplines onto and that helps us uh, to live in the way of Jesus. Now our hope during this series has really been to inspire you to practice spiritual disciplines, but also to introduce the concept of a rule of life to our church, because it's our goal down the road, we're going to continue to have this conversation and build towards this, but it is one of our goals as a leadership team here at the church that eventually, when we say what it looks like to be a member of Life Church, that what we would be saying is we all live according to a shared rule of life. That we would say, hey, if you're going to be a member here, uh, we want you to commit to these sorts of practices together, and that we we commit ourselves or covenant ourselves to one another and to a way of living. And then you might be able to have some personal spiritual disciplines that you would add on to your personal rule of life, but we would say this is the baseline commitment that we all make together. We're going to live in this way. And so we're, this series has been an endeavor to introduce you to a framework for the way we will live together as a church in the future. So we'll talk more about that in the coming year. Uh, but today we're talking about our final spiritual discipline. We're ending our series today called uh, Rule Your Life on the spiritual discipline of spiritual friendship. Now, this is a good time to be talking about spiritual friendship because you either uh, lost a friend over Thanksgiving because they wouldn't stop talking about politics or you gained a friend because they did keep talking about politics and you find out you agree with them, right? Now, one of those things happened over the holidays for somebody. Uh, maybe you are feeling a little bit lonely and so a conversation about spiritual friendship might sound like a, a thing that's going to kind of poke at a pain point for you, but I hope that it's actually a blessing for you today to talk about spiritual friendship. Maybe by the end of today, you'll realize you've got some acquaintances and you have an invitation to move those acquaintances into spiritual friendship. So I, I want to just kind of set the stage for what we're talking about here. Uh, but let's go to, uh, let's, let's go outside the church for a second to talk about friendship because we understand that everyone values friendship. Right? And this, this is down throughout generations. Friendship has been a value of mankind. In fact, Ralph Waldo Emerson once wrote that a friend is a person with whom I may be sincere. Before him, I may think out loud. 
This is a good kind of earthly definition, worldly definition of friendship. It's, it's pretty basic. A person with whom you can be you, right? And you don't have to apologize for all the ways that you're a massive weirdo, right? That's, that's kind of the, the new way of saying what Emerson is trying to get across here. Uh, but, but we also understand if we bring this conversation into the church that friendship is wildly important to God. Jesus didn't just call his disciples servants or followers. Uh, towards the end of his earthly ministry, he actually went so far as to say, you are my friends. Think about that. The Savior of the world said, you get to be my friend. We serve a God who isn't just looking for subservience, but for friendship. Over 180 times the noun form of the word friend is seen in Scripture. This is an idea that is important to God. Yes, we agree. Friendship is important to God, so we should be talking about it. Now, I have good news for you, as I've been observing for the last several years, especially since the COVID era came to an end, and in this last couple of years, I can say with confidence that we are a friendly church. We're a friendly church, right? Good job being a friendly church. That is awesome. Uh, it is next to impossible to come to Life Church and not be welcomed by somebody, right? I, I remember one of the first communications that Dennis Tyson and I had with each other was he actually sent me an email. We, had, we didn't even meet each other yet. And Dennis sends me an email. He goes, I've just come to the church for the first time. We're in the area. We're looking for a church. And we just walked in for the very first time. And I was greeted by multiple people on the way in. And he goes, by the way, that Ron Mooring fella, he's great, <laughs> right? He, and he is great, and he was impressed by the fact that our youth pastor stopped a conversation that he was having over here with someone he clearly had long relationship with and went over and talked to, to Dennis and to Debbie and made it a point to make them feel welcomed. And then on Thursday night, we had a, a young lady named Mickey who stood up kind of right over there at the table and, and, and with tears in her eyes said, what you have here is rare that I feel so welcomed when I come into this church. You are a friendly people. Good job. Good job. Just turn to your neighbor real quick and just say, good job for being friendly. By the way, shout out to Dennis and Debbie because you guys served as greeters today. So you took it so to heart that you were welcomed here that you're welcoming people. Good job, guys. That's awesome. Uh, I also love, by the way, shout out to, to Larry Saltzman, who's a member of our church council, and he stood up on Thursday night and he said, you know, what I love about our church is that I can sit at the same table with people that I've called friends for 35 years, and we can talk about the things of the kingdom, and at the same table are people that I had just met like two weeks ago, and I feel just as friendly with them, and we can talk about the things of the kingdom. This is the way church should be, right? Okay, that said... That pat on the back having been said. <laughs> We're actually not talking about being a friendly community when we talk about the spiritual discipline of spiritual friendship. Here, here, here's what I mean. It is not enough in the practice of spiritual friendship as a spiritual discipline that you go to a church where people feel welcome. 
That is a corporate communal reality. It's a corporate value. We all belong is one of our core values here at the church. We are living out that value and well done. But we're talking about something a little bit deeper. We, maybe you could say within the context of community, the discipline of spiritual friendship is looking at your crew within the community. Now, what I just said to you is that it is actually okay if within the community called Life Church, where there is a bunch of friendly people and we all belong, and, and you, you can't get to a seat here without being loved by somebody, right? It, that, that it is actually okay that in the context of that community, that you have a crew within that community that isn't 100% of all the people in the church. That that's actually perfectly fine. In fact, Jesus modeled that, right? He had well over 100 people following him around wherever he went all the time. And then within the over 100 people, he had how many? 12. And within the 12, he had three. Jesus had a crew. He had what in my crew we call a tribe, right? And my tribe or my crew exists within the context of my church, my community, and that actually is okay. In fact, we're so committed to that being okay and that being one of the rhythms of our life that next year we're finally relaunching life groups because we want you to have a crew because you need friends within your community, amen? So we, we're not breaking away from being friendly with everybody. We're going deeper in our friendliness to create spiritual friendship. That's what we're talking about today, all right? Now, friendship is, uh, again, it's, it's about the crew within. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote it like this in his book called The Four Loves. He said, friendship arises out of mere companionship where two or more of the companions discover that they have in common the same insight or interest or even taste with which the others do not share. Until that moment, each of them believed that it was their own unique treasure or burden or weirdness. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. See, friendship is not simply being a part of the same community. It's about having shared community in which we discover shared interest. Does this make sense? Lewis actually doubles down on this idea that shared interest is vital to friendship. When he's writing about this idea, he, he actually kind of highlights people who say that they want friends, but they seem to always struggle making friends. And he says one of the reasons why people say they want friends, but they don't actually have real friendships, is he says this, the very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question is, do you see the same truth or, or do you value the same thing I value? They would answer, I see nothing and I don't care about that truth or value. I only want a friend. Lewis says, no friendship can arise, even though affection, of course, may. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about and friendship must be about something. Even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share nothing, and those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Again, friendship is people with a shared community 
who discover shared interest. Not mutually admiring each other. That's actually in Lewis's book, The Four Loves, he calls that a different kind of love. Uh, that's what we might commonly refer to as romantic love, right? Like Sharon and I married to one another, the love that we have has us staring at each other, admiring one another, and just being in love with one another, right? But friendship is not about, friendship is, is not about Kyle, my dear friend, admiring, having mutual admiration for one another. Friendship is about Kyle and I standing shoulder to shoulder, having mutual admiration for a shared other. Does this make sense? And here's where spiritual friendship becomes really powerful. Because spiritual friendship is the, it's, it's the invitation, it's, it's the opportunity for us to, to, to love something other than ourselves together. And that that loving of something other than ourselves together draws us together and makes us friends. Now, what I just said there was that even though you might not say my spiritual friends are everyone in my church, I did also say to you that you could be spiritual friends with everyone in your church. Why? Because our shared other is the same person. Right? Elijah and I might click together on a mutual admiration of the Beatles. Because I'm British and he has good taste. But what makes that relationship special and powerful and deep and rich and meaningful and life-giving is that we care about something more important than the Beatles. It's Jesus. Does this make sense? Is this helpful? Okay, so the discipline of spiritual friendship is the working in and working for friendships that are fundamentally interested in God's kingdom and in God's work in each person's life. They can be interested in other things. You can be interested in the Lakers and also in God. Be interested in God first, right? So spiritual friendship is practiced through a shared commitment to support, encourage, and pray for each other, not just to hang out and watch basketball games or hang out and listen to music that you like or, uh, in Lewis's experiment, uh, play with white mice or dominoes. Spiritual friendship is something deeper. I support you. I encourage you. I pray for you, and I receive your prayer and encouragement and support, and because of you, I am moved closer to Christ if you are my spiritual friend. Tim Keller, in a sermon on spiritual friendship, said that some people have no friends because they are not serious about their spirituality, and then he goes on to say, here's the great irony. Make friendship with God more important than friendship with people. Get in with God more than you want to get in with people, and people will come and want to get in with you. Here's the reality. You will create friends that produce the kind of culture that you're passionate about. So be passionate about Jesus, and you will naturally attract spiritual friends, right? Now, you might already begin to be evaluating the friends that you have in your life. 
And what I'm not about to tell you is a whole sermon that says, this is why you need to ditch your friends. Don't ditch your friends. Lead them to Christ. I am so tired of the narrative, and this is really big for for Gen Z and for millennials, where where we seem to be encouraging, especially Christian people, to quote-unquote outgrow your friendships. As if your, your anointing in God is inevitably going to lead you to outgrow your friends because you are so close to God. And if they're not serious, then you're just going to leave your friends behind. And that's actually a sign of your spiritual maturity. Friends, I say to you that that's a sign of spiritual abuse and neglect of relationship. True spiritual friends look at their friends who are not spiritual and invite them to become that. Right? So be that thing, be that person, be the inspiration, be the magnet to Jesus for your friends, and they will become spiritual friends. In Acts chapter 20, we see Paul surrounded by spiritual friends. He's leaving them, and they really don't want him to leave. We won't take time to get into this because we're trying to move towards 1 Samuel. Uh, But but here's what happens, is that they're, they're, they're pleading with him not to leave, and he says, I'm called by God to leave, and they finally agree with him, okay, we will bless you to leave. And, and what's interesting is in Acts chapter 20, we see this group of friends. It says they get on, the, on their knees with him on the sand, on the beach, before he gets on the boat to leave. The question of spiritual friendship is, who is on their knees with you in the sand? Who is committed with you to where you believe God is sending you? That even if it's hard for them and uncomfortable for them, they'll get on their knees with you in the sand to pray that you will be blessed in the going. Even if it's hard for them and uncomfortable and, and, and it may even mean uh, uh, some, some distance even at moments because I need to go and be about what the Lord has sent me to be about. The discipline of spiritual friendship asks us, who are you getting on your knees to pray with in the sand, and who would do the same for you? Who are you supporting? Who are you empowering? Okay, so, so my, my goal today is to offer you this case study, but I, I had to set the tone there. And then there's two important comments that I need to make before we move into this case study. And I know that this is, and I'm a college professor at a Bible college. This is, this is really bad format of a sermon because I've gone for like 10 minutes and haven't read you a Bible verse yet. I'm sorry, but I just have to preface all of this stuff because the devil really wants to work against your friendship. We have to make sure we set the table the right way. The first thing I just need you to understand is that friendship is vital to your health. It's vital to your health. The the APA just released a study in June of this year stating that people with friends, this is now research done, that people with good friendships struggle less with anxiety and depression and actually live longer than people without strong friendships. And they're less likely to die of heart issues That's interesting, that if you have physical, healthy friendships, that your physical heart will be more healthy. Hmm. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Now, another thing that I think is important, in case you feel discouraged by all of this, is that their research also shows that, quote, friends can be made and maintained at any age. So if you're thinking, I've lost the opportunity to build friends, I'm too far along in my life and I'm very lonely and this is it, it's just too late for me, hogwash, the science says you're wrong. It's not too late to build a good spiritual friendship. And friends, you're in the right place to do it. 
So it's not too late, and it's good for your health. So if friendship is good for your physical health, then spiritual friendship is good for your spiritual health. You're so smart. Okay, the second thing I need you to hear is this. The desire for you to have friends is normal. This is a funky thing that happens in the church is that when we, we walk around going, I feel lonely, therefore I'm unhealthy. In the sermon I referenced earlier, Pastor Tim Keller said this. He said, the ache for friends is the one ache that is not the result of sin. God made us in such a way that we can't enjoy paradise without friends. Think about this. Adam was lonely and sin had not yet entered the world. Every other ache in the human heart came after sin entered the world, except for loneliness. And God looked down, and the first thing he ever said, this is not good about, was that man should not be alone. You need a friend. God agrees with you. And it's not an, uh, it's not a, an indicator of a malformed, broken desire in your heart that you want friendship and feel lonely. It's actually an indicator that you were made in the image of a God who himself exists inside of relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then made you in his image. So if you're in the image of a person who exists within relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you are lonely, you're just being like God. You're just being like the one who created you in his image. So it's actually a, a healthy sign for you to want relationship. You're not being selfish. You're, you're not malformed in some way. You're not dysfunctional. You're being like God designed you to be. So if you're listening to all of this and you're, and you're going, I I'm hurting just hearing you talk about this because I don't know if I have friends. God actually put that desire there, and we're talking about this today because we want to pray that God would meet that desire. Amen? Okay, now, uh, connected to that. If you resist making friends because you've been hurt, I am so sorry. I've been there. I know what that feels like, but that doesn't mean that you don't need friendship as well. Please do not wait to be healthy again before you trust new friends. Or maybe before you reconcile broken friendships, right? You cannot be fully healthy in the way that God designed you alone. So instead of waiting, go and develop spiritual friendships now with people who will bring you to Jesus. Your friends will never be enough to heal you, but Jesus is. And you might not always see all of yourself in order to be able to get yourself fully to Jesus. This is why we need community. Okay, now, we said all of that stuff so that now we can do a case study on two characters who demonstrate a powerful spiritual friendship in Scripture. Their names are Jonathan and David. I intend to move relatively quickly through this case study, but my hope is to offer four commitments of people who practice spiritual friendship. Four things that you can do, inspired by Jonathan and David, if you would like to practice spiritual friendship. Because I'm going to go quickly, I highly recommend that you read First and Second Samuel to catch the whole story. 
pastor is telling you to read your Bible. Yes, okay, good, First and Second Samuel. But we're just going to like dip in at four different points in the story so we can pick this up. Uh, so if you're unfamiliar with the story of Jonathan and David, that's why you would go read the context. But here's a, a little brief background. Jonathan was a prince. He was the son of King Saul, the first king of the people of Israel. So Jonathan grew up as a prince. He grew up as, he was also a, a skilled warrior, uh, and he had a heart for God. This was Jonathan. David, on the other hand, was the son of a guy named Jesse, who was a farmer. Uh, Jesse was a sheep herder, and David kind of was picking up the family tradition. But he had been secretly anointed by Samuel the prophet. See, Saul, the king, had done some hokey stuff. Read the book. Um, and, and he had lost the anointing, so he wasn't going to get to be king anymore. And Samuel was told by God, go anoint the person who's going to be the next king of Israel. Turns out that that king is a kid named David. Okay, David then, shortly after being anointed, he ends up fighting and killing a giant named Goliath. Maybe you've heard that story. And then he is summoned immediately to speak to King Saul. King Saul is like, this kid just beat that giant. I got to talk to this kid. Right, So that's where we pick up the beginning of our story here, uh, knowing that the first thing that we see modeled in this friendship, I'm going to tell you what it is, and then I'll unpack it for you, is this, sacrificial blessing. The first thing that we see Jonathan and David model as friends is sacrificial blessing. So, uh, he's asked, so David is asked by King Saul, who's your dad? And then, uh, and then David replied, his name is Jesse, and we live in Bethlehem. And then we get into verse 18, in ver chapter, eight, or chapter 18, verse 1. It says, after David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, and Jonathan loved David. Now, just for the record, there is a, a whole side conversation over here that is happening and has been happening for years that is attempting to imply that the love between Jonathan and David was sexual in nature and that they actually had a homosexual relationship. I would just like to tell you, I've done the research. Many other people smarter than me have, have done the research. Uh, there is no evidence in their relationship or in the language used that points to that kind of relationship. In fact, the words used, if you study the original language, point to the kind of relationship C.S. Lewis was talking about between friends who are like brothers. Um, and, and so I would just like to say, uh, if anyone who has ever told you um, that that this was an inappropriate sexual relationship, or uh, rather they've just said it's a sexual relationship in, a, in an attempt to justify homosexuality, uh, I would just like to say you were lied to. Uh, that is not biblical and is not at all what is happening in this relationship. Uh, so we, we just make no room for misinterpretation of the biblical text or the meaning of this relationship. Okay? Just need to clarify the crazy stuff. Huh. That said, if homosexuality is a conversation that is a challenge for you, uh, is a part of your story, and you feel like I just rebuked you, I did not. And that's not my intention. Neither is that God's intention. Um, scripture is very clear to call sin, sin, um, and, and we all belong in the kingdom. 
So what we, what we don't do, even though what I just very clearly and passionately said, using the Bible to say something that it doesn't say is silly and, and I think abusive and wrong and sinful. I'm deeply passionate about that. I think the Lord is also deeply passionate that you feel welcome in the kingdom if this is a journey, part of your journey or a struggle that you have. Uh, we're not looking to shame you, neither is God, okay? Uh, now, if, you're, if you thought that I was just saying that you have permission to go and shame other people who have that struggle, I also didn't say that. So as your pastor, don't you dare, okay? So just felt like I needed to step away from the pulpit for a second. Just pastor you. Just let's be clear. The Bible says what it is. Says sin is what sin is, but we also are called to love people, and you can do both things in the kingdom. Amen. Okay. All right. Verse 2, from that day on, Saul kept David with him. He like became a, like a mentor to him. He kept him as a ward in his house, uh, and he wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact. Uh, the original word there would be, uh, in a lot of translations, we would use the word covenant, a covenant, a lifelong commitment with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact or covenant by taking off his robe and giving it to David together with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, I want you to know this, that what Jonathan gave to David is not just a nice present for a kid he just met who killed a giant. Thank you very much for killing the giant. Here's a bow. He was giving him items of his own possession that actually signified the authority of succession to become king. Now, I, I, want to, I, want, I want you to understand that, that biblical scholars are unsettled on whether or not Jonathan knew in that moment that there was any anointing that had happened for David. In fact, it is likely that Jonathan had no idea that, that the prophet had secretly anointed David to be king. It's highly likely he had no clue that that had happened. So if that's the case, then it seems as if Jonathan has seen something in David immediately that said, I, I need to not only know this person, but I need to bless this person. And that blessing requires me to give something of myself that means I become uh, vulnerable or maybe even less than I would be if I were keeping all of this to myself. I'm going to give something meaningful to myself. I make a sacrificial blessing. So Jonathan was giving to David what would have been his right to keep, and instead of keeping it, he recognizes David's value. Even if he's doing it subconsciously, or dare I say, spiritually, he recognizes David's value, and he gives him a blessing that required him to sacrifice something of personal value. Which, this is what Jesus teaches us when he teaches us the greatest indicator of love and friendship. In, in John 15, he says, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for your friends. And later on, John in 1 John 3.16 encourages us from this same example when he says, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. So spiritual friendship is the sort of thing that you practice as you sacrifice of value in order to uh, uh, speak life or to bless into potential reality 
the thing that you see in another person. I propose to you that Jonathan saw something in David and said, I need to bless that so that this man becomes what God has purposed him to become. And that was the beginning of this spiritual friendship. So spiritual friendship seems to begin when you see something of God's hand on another person and you feel compelled by God to give of yourself so that they can become who God has created them to become. Uh, maybe a, a less spiritual sounding way uh, to, to say that is, I see potential in you and I want to help. I see potential in you and I want to help. Now, I'm not talking about mentorship. I'm talking about spiritual friendship. I'm, I, my helping is I'm going to stand shoulder to shoulder with you and give whatever of me that God has given to me that I could keep, I'm going to give it to you because I feel like you need it to become what you're supposed to become. And the reality is you need something of somebody else to become everything that God has called you to become. You cannot become everything that God has created you to be in isolation. And this, this is why Paul, when he talks about spiritual gifts, he says a spiritual gift has been given to each one of you so that you can help or serve one another. Why would that be in Scripture if it isn't true that what's in you is meant to bless me and what's in me is meant to bless you? And this is especially true in my spiritual friendships. So if there are people that you seem to be able to see something of God's plan for them on their life, they might be a person that God is inviting you to bless. And they may become a spiritual friend. Now, note that, uh, that not everyone I bless becomes a spiritual friend, but I don't have any spiritual friends that I haven't first blessed. So there's an order there. The second thing that we see, so we see sacrificial blessing. The second thing that we see modeled in Jonathan and David's relationship or friendship is loyalty. David grew rapidly in popularity. I mean, he killed a giant. And then he joins the army and he leads the army. And his success rate becomes better than King Saul's success rate. And King Saul has a problem with jealousy. He, he Read the book. Uh, he, but he's afraid that David is going to usurp the throne and take the kingdom from him. So by the time we get to chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, we find out that Saul has planned a, a way to kill David. And Jonathan also finds this out. He rushes to David to tell him about his dad's plot to kill his friend. He goes to warn his friend, but he does so much more than just warn him. In verse 16 and 17, it says, Jonathan made a, another solemn pact, another covenant with David, saying, may the Lord bless, may the Lord destroy all your enemies, which is a wild thing to say, especially when you consider who the enemy was. It's this man's dad. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his vow of friendship again, for Jonathan loved David as himself. And down in verse 42, it says, And at last, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. In other words, get out of town. Go be safe. For we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is witness of a bond between us and our children forever. Then David left, and Jonathan returned to the town. Now, what makes this significant is, of course, that Jonathan is choosing his friend over his father. Jonathan loves David like a brother. He, he, he places his loyalty where his heart was, where his friendship was. 
So a spiritual friend seems to understand what Proverbs says about loyalty and friendship. In chapter 11, verse 13, it says, A talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is a faithful spirit conceals a matter. In other words, you're not blabbing all your friend's stuff all over Facebook. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend is always loyal, and a brother is born to help in time of need. Proverbs 18.24, a man who has a friend must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This is what Jonathan is modeling. Even if you were my own brother, I'd stick closer to you. You are my spiritual friend. So friendships live and die based on the decisions we make around loyalty. Like We know that just on a fundamental level. If you're not loyal to me, we can't say that we're friends, right? But spiritual friendship understands a deeper truth. It understands the thing that Paul was writing in Ephesians 6.12, which says, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. We're, we're fighting, rather, against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world that we live in, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So certainly, it's absolutely true that friends defend friends against attacks that come from other people. But Jonathan was not simply protecting his friend from his father. He was protecting an anointed future king of the people of Israel from an attack of the devil, which was designed to destroy David before he could realize his destiny. So when, when people come against my friend Danny, I, I'm not going to go and punch that person in the face. I'm going to express loyalty to Danny and say, Danny, it's, it's you and me. We're in this together, and I'm not going anywhere. I don't believe what they say about you. I, in fact, I know that for a fact that that's not true, and I'm with you, and I'll defend you, and I'll speak truth about you. But we're not going after that person. Let's pray. And for all of the places in your mind that say, that doesn't seem powerful, Withdraw yourself from the things that the world says are powerful. And remember that mountains are moved when we pray in faith. This is where all of our action begins, right? Spiritual friends don't settle for making enemies out of people. That is too short-sighted. They don't say it's us against the world. They say us and God against the devil. So let's pray. Let's, let's go to God. Let's make spiritual plans for your freedom, right? You have to remember the thing that Jonathan and David didn't have was, a, was the Messiah. They didn't have the freedom of the kingdom. They didn't have the Holy Spirit in this moment. They, we have something they never had. We have Jesus. So we go to him. So you practice spiritual friendship when you encourage your friends when the enemy attacks. You practice spiritual friendship when you remind them who God says that they are. And when you make plans to walk with them to overcome the enemy, the enemy of their soul, not just the enemy of their physical body. We, we actually see this even more in the next thing, in the next lesson that we learn from Jonathan and David as they model for us that spiritual friends practice encouragement. Remember, Saul wants to kill David. Jonathan's dad, Saul, wants to kill Jonathan's friend, David. And Jonathan warns his friends. So we'll pick up the story in chapter 23, still in 1 Samuel. Chapter 23, verse 15, it says this. One day near Horush, David received the news that Saul was on the way to Ziph to search for him and kill him. 
Merry Christmas. Jonathan went to find David and encourage him to stay strong in his faith in God. Here's what Jonathan says. Don't be afraid. My father will never find you. Listen to, listen to what Jonathan says. You are going to be the king of Israel. And I will be next to you as my father Saul is well aware. So the two... I've chosen you against my father, and he didn't do it in secret. Like, everybody knew. The king knew. Jonathan, the prince, says, no, 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 I picked David. This means that at some point, Jonathan had a conversation with Saul, and he said, Dad, you're wrong. I defend David against you. And it's interesting that Jonathan managed to be able to do that, apparently, without having to kill his dad. Or get kicked out of the palace. He seems to have been able to... There's probably a whole lot of lessons in there about how to handle conflict that isn't the point of this sermon, but it would be a good thing for us to talk about at some point. Jonathan seems to have been able to speak the truth to power without having to overthrow power. Interesting. His faith was in God, the ultimate power, right? So verse 18, he says, So the two of them renewed their solemn pact or covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan returned home while David stayed at Horish. Now, now obviously, so, so we see here that, that whatever Jonathan knew at the beginning of their friendship, Jonathan knows full well that David was anointed as the next king of Israel. He, he, knows, he is fully aware of David's anointing and his destiny. He comes right out and says it. You're going to be the king. I'm going to stand right by your side. My dad knows it. He's big mad because he can't handle it, right? So the discipline of spiritual friendship encourages and makes sure that friends don't give up. Do you have people in your life who, when you are in the valley place emotionally or spiritually, will come alongside you and say, don't quit? Not today, not on my watch, you're not quitting. See, here's what Jonathan did practically. He prioritized David in his crisis moment. He left town and came out to find David, prioritizing him over whatever else he had going on back home. He spends time with him. He calls him out of his funk. Remember, he says, don't be afraid. He reminds him of the promise that he receives from God. Remember, he says, you will be king. And he reaffirms his loyalty. He says, I will be next to you. And then they reaffirm the pact that they have made. Um, young people call this a DTR, define the relationship. Multiple times, Jonathan leads his friend in a DTR. Hey, buddy, don't forget who we are to each other. And because who we are to each other is meaningful, I'm going to make sure that you become who you're supposed to be. So sometimes the most encouraging thing that a friend does is they, they just tell you who you are. They just remind you who you are. They, they, they do it with words. Sometimes they do it in silence. They remind you of what God has promised. Sometimes they do it just in the simple way of saying, friend, I'm with you, and it's going to be okay. That's a That's a promise. It's going to be okay. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually it is going to be okay, and I will be with you until it is. A spiritual friend makes their friend's success their success. This is what Jonathan was doing. He was saying, you're going to be the king, 
And you being the king is my marker of success. This is what God is doing. Jonathan did not simply say, you, David, will realize your purpose. He, said, he covenanted himself to David, and he said, we will realize your purpose. We will realize your purpose. This is, this is profound. I want to spend so much time talking about this, but I have to move on. I'll say this. We practice spiritual friendship when we honor the command in 1 Thessalonians 5, which says, so encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. Paul is making the assumption here in 1 Thessalonians that the, the, the Christians here that he's writing to are already encouraging one another. And he's saying, keep it up. Do it. Encourage one another. In other places, he writes, stir one another up to love and good works. Encourage each other. Do you have people that you encourage and that can encourage you? Which is different than people who try to encourage you, but you don't let them. Spiritual friends, let your friends encourage you. Right? And they know how to encourage you. Uh, Here's something that we know. The number of breakthroughs and, and freedom and victory that is just on the other side of the place where you want to give up is ridiculous. It's so many. The number of breakthroughs that are just on the other side of a breakdown. And the kingdom is designed in such a way that God would send people to you who are friends and know how to encourage you and say, don't give up, and then you don't give up, and then we get the breakthrough. And then we celebrate. We get the victory because you didn't quit. Because you let your friend tell you to keep on walking. So spiritual friendship is committed to helping friends get the breakthrough because your breakthrough is our breakthrough. Jonathan and David teach us that spiritual friends are committed to sacrificial blessing, to loyalty and encouragement. And there's a fourth thing, and I'm going to try to say this quickly, but it's wildly important. The fourth thing that they teach us is that spiritual friends are committed to accountability. They're committed to accountability. Now, we we pick up the story after David has officially become the king of Israel. Let me read it to you. Now, we're in the second book, 2 Samuel chapter 11. So some time has passed, many chapters. And it says, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. Yeah! victory. Woohoo! Go David's army. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now that might not seem like a big deal, but it is a big deal. We, we live in a world now where the, the commander in chief of the army doesn't go out and fight on the front lines. And we're probably okay with that. Like we'd rather our president not get killed every time we send, right? Like we're probably good with that. But in David's day, the commander in chief was meant to be on the front lines with his soldiers. So people who understand this culturally read, in the spring of the war when kings normally go out to war. Uh Uh-oh, that's an interesting way to say that. Why did you phrase it quite like that? David sent Joab, and the Israelites sent Joab, huh, and the Israelite army out to fight the Ammonites. Wow, they had victory. Of course they did, Joab. Go get it. Of course they had victory. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. What is going on here? This is, not, this is not normal behavior for a king. Now, David is a, has set himself up for what is about to be his greatest failure. 
If, if you are familiar with this story, you already know what happens next, but it says in verse two, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, kings get to take a nap. Baby, go take your nap. King David, you should be out to war. Just pamper yourself and go take a nap. So jealous. <laughs> David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. You got a palace, you got a roof, go take a walk, whatever. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Uh, that woman's name was Bathsheba. It, it, she's not named Bathsheba because she was seen taking a bath. Her, um, <laughs> Her, her name actually means daughter of the oath, which is wildly ironic when you consider that David then uses her physical body to break oaths. And, and as this story begins, David is looking out at a, standing in a place he has no business standing when his soldiers are out dying for him. Looking at a place he has no business looking even though he owns the city. Seeing somebody that he has no business looking at, doing something that she has every right in her private residence to do, and he dehumanizes her, taking her into his bed, sleeps with her, and I'm so thankful for our, our understanding now of power, that we now can understand that what David actually did was he used his position of power to essentially rape a girl. He then sends her home. She then later sends report back to the king, sir, I'm pregnant. Oh no, David goes through all kinds of schemes and lies to try to position Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to do the husbandly thing with his wife. Uriah is such a man of honor, he keeps sleeping with the soldiers. David gets upset about this because he can't cover up his sin that he sends Uriah to the front lines, sends a secret message for the entire army to pull back. Uriah standing by himself and is killed. So David is a man who has neglected his place, lusted after a woman and taken action on it, using his power to essentially rape a woman, has covered up his sin with lies, and has gone so far as to become a murderer, ca causing other people under his power to be complicit in his act of murder. And then one day the prophet shows up, he's like, how you doing, David? Let me tell you a story about some sheep. And David's like, yeah, let's talk about sheep. And then he gets caught. It's a compelling story. Read 2 Samuel. I'm saying this to you in the context of this sermon because the one thing that is missing from this story is Jonathan. So what we know historically is that by this time, David is king and Jonathan is dead. And, and what doesn't happen in David's story as he becomes king is he doesn't replace Jonathan with a spiritual friend. He just becomes king. 
It's almost as if in some place in David's mind, he goes, well, now I've become king. My friend who's dead helped me get here. That was good enough. I can now coast on the level of my anointing and position and power, and I no longer need anyone to keep me in check, and I can just do whatever I want. Thank you very much. I know all these other kings go out to war, and that should be what I do right now, but I'm feeling a little tired. I'm going to stay home and take a nap. I promise you, Jonathan would have been like, bro, what are you doing? Why are you here right now? In fact, Jonathan, the warrior prince, would have said, what do you mean you're not coming with us? Because Jonathan would have gone on the front line and said, no, king, you're coming with us. And David never would have been home. And if it wasn't Jonathan, a good spiritual friend that he had replaced Jonathan with, or that, you understand what I mean, after Jonathan had died, that God had allowed for this other spiritual friendship to blossom. And David never leans into another friendship in that way in his life, and he positions himself to become the worst version of himself. See, accountability, I mean, it's life-saving. In this story, literally life-saving. But we understand spiritual friendship that produces accountability saves our spiritual lives. Proverbs teaches us that a real friend will tell you the truth even if it risks the friendship, right? Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. How many people heard David say, I'm not going with you, and then they just go, oh, okay, well, you're the king. I guess you get to call the shots. Jonathan would have never. Proverbs 9, 8, and 9. So don't bother correcting mockers. They will only hate you, but correct the wise, for they will love you. Instruct the wise, and they will be even wiser. Teach the righteous, and they will learn even more. Spiritual friendship has this built into the flow and the ebb and the function of relationship. And back to Proverbs 27, verse 17, it says, As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. David had become dull in spirit, so dull that he could walk out on the roof of his palace knowing he should have been out at war, see a woman bathing, and not have the alarm go off. He had become dull in his spirit because he didn't have anybody keeping him accountable to righteousness. So holding people accountable is a great way to find spiritual friends. Like, you want to try to find a spiritual friend? Test the waters with accountability. That's what Proverbs 9 says, right? Instruct the wise and they'll become wiser. Teach the righteous, they will learn even more. So stand for truth in the context of your relationships, and you will attract true friends. And praise God, you will also drive away the fools. Here's what I just told you so practically. When you go to work or you're in your neighborhood, you're in your friend group, and somebody does something unrighteous, you say, that's unrighteous. We don't do that. And if they say, then we're not a we, then you say, bye, Felicia. Right? Because the wise will say, tell me more. Tell me more. Oh, I'm so thankful. Thank you for saying that. I, I want to honor the Lord. A true friend understands what Paul was trying to say in Ephesians 4, verse 15. We will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. A true friend 
will hear you correct them and say, thank you. And you'll do the same for the people who speak lovingly the truth into your life. A spiritual friend is a safe place for accountability. Because they understand what 1 Peter 4.8 says, that love covers a multitude of sins. So we practice the discipline of spiritual friendship when we agree to hold and be held accountable to righteous living. We practice spiritual friendship when we follow through on that agreement to hold and be held accountable. And that looks like asking questions and making confession. We practice spiritual friendship when we refuse to become offended by the questions that our friends ask us about our sin. My spiritual friends know the places where I struggle with sin, and they'll ask me about it. And thank God that they do. And it's my responsibility not to get offended at them. (gasps) How dare you ask the pastor of a local Foursquare church if he's ever sinned. Hmm. I've never met anyone who would talk like that. I've never said anything like that. Uh, We also practice spiritual friendship when not only do we refuse to be offended by questions that are asked about us, but when we refuse to reject our friends because it turns out that they sinned. Like we can't reject people because they've got sin. Accountability requires that we confess and that we trust that the people will say, I still love you anyway. Amen? Okay, so... Uh, David and Jonathan are this incredible example of friendship. We could keep going, keep talking about the lessons that they could teach us about friendship from their, their successes and their failures. But for today, we've talked about this, that they teach us that spiritual friendship is committed to sacrificial blessing, to loyalty, to encouragement, and to accountability. And it is absolutely clear that if you are healthy, you, are, you already have a Jonathan in your life. And if you are wise, you want one. If you're healthy, you already have Jonathans, maybe more than one, in your life. People who, as my friend Shane says, can pull the collar on you if you go a little crazy. Right? And if you don't have one, you're wise if you're asking God for one right now. But that said, we don't get to the David-Jonathan relationship uh, because we sit in a sermon like this and, and then we go home and we say, God, bring me a Jonathan. The reality of the way the kingdom works and true spiritual friendship works is that this is not an invitation into asking God to bring you a Jonathan, but an invitation into you being a Jonathan. And then, and then a commitment to keeping your eyes open for the Davids. What I'm saying there is you commit to be the kind of friend Jonathan was to David, and you look for people in whom you can see God's purpose and pleasure. And then when you see it, you call it out and you just see what happens. When you see it, you bless it, even if it costs you something, and you see how they respond. You see it, you bless it, even if it costs you something valuable of yourself, like your time or wisdom that you have gained over years, and you say, I want to help you become everything that God has called you to become, and they might become a spiritual friend. You don't get spiritual friendships by sitting, waiting for people to come and invite you to pizza. You create spiritual friendships by being one. 
Turns out friendship is a spiritual discipline because it takes work. It takes work. All the married people in the room are like, yes, it takes work. All the parents in the room are like, yeah, it takes work to like be in a relationship with a person. It takes work. It's not too late for you. It's not too late. It's not too late for your group of friends to turn it around and move towards righteousness. It's not too late. But remember, spiritual disciplines are not about what we receive. They are of the work that we do to live like Jesus would if he were in our shoes. So the invitation or the question of spiritual, the spiritual discipline of spiritual friendship is, if Jesus was your friend's friend, how would he treat them? Follow suit. So Jesus didn't wait for friends to show up. He walked out, saw the people that he could see the Father doing something with, and said, come hang out with me. And I'll give my life so that you can become everything that you, you are meant to become. Right? All right. Let me give you some homework and then we'll pray. How about that? Here are four things that you could do starting this week. You could do, actually do this even most of this today. Uh, the first thing that I would invite you to do is this. Make a list of at least one person that you would call a spiritual friend. It's a list because you're going to put some things under at least that name. So, so, so make a list, and, and on that list will have at least one name of a person you would say, this is a spiritual friend, or, oh, man, I'd love if this person would become a spiritual friend in my life. By the way, I just I want to kind of not bury the lead here. Um, you're going to have to have a define the relationship conversation with this person at some point. So, so a person that you can actually have a conversation with. So like the author of your favorite book is never going to be your spiritual friend. Right? That person on Instagram, um, Facebook, um, uh, the, the, the blogger that you love, right? They're, these people aren't going to be your spiritual friends. These are people you have relationship with. Key note, this is not a spouse, a parent, or a child. Those relationships are spiritual in nature, and they are often friendly, but they are not the same as what we're talking about. My relationship with my wife is distinct and unique from every other relationship I have in the entire world. She is my best friend in the whole world, but our, the spirituality of our relationship is not this conversation. Does it make sense? Neither are my children my friends. Parents in the room. I was not given children to steward so that I could be their friend. I am their dad. I am friendly with my children. I think I'm one of my daughter's favorite people on the whole planet, and they mine. But they're not my friends. They're my daughters. That actually is a deeply meaningful, different relationship. And you can go down the list with all of your other uh, relationships in your family. I just want to make that a note, all right? It's not to devalue those relationships, but they are distinctly different, and we would have a different sermon about the way we relate with those people, even though many of these things might overlap. Thank you for your wisdom and understanding that. Uh, the second thing, then, is that under each name, I want you to write a few things. These are people that you believe are spiritual friends, so it implies that you probably can see something of a God-given purpose in them. Now, maybe you're not comfortable saying that language. I don't know that I really hear God. Here's the question. As you pray for them, you say, God, what would I write here if I were to write what you want for them? And if you can write something for them, then that's probably you getting an insight from God about their God-given purpose. Now, it's important that you go 
to God and you say, God, did what I write here, was that actually what I wanted for them or is that actually what you want for them, right? Like Coach Alvin, um, if you're thinking about spiritual friendships and you're like writing down, I want this person to like be in the NBA and get a championship, like is that what God is saying about them or just because you really want to be friends with somebody who wins an NBA championship? Because that's on my list too, but not spiritual friendships, right? You feel me? Okay, so do we understand uh, that we just we want to make sure we're hearing God say what he is saying. If you want help uh, clarifying that, I'd be happy to have a conversation with you to follow up. Uh, but, what, but then once you have some clarity around what is it I feel like I can see that God might be doing in them, then you ask God the question, what can I do to be a blessing to them? How can I come alongside them and even if it costs me something, help them become everything that God has called them to become. And, and then the next thing that I would invite you to write about under their name is at least one area where you know that they need encouragement. And it's good for you to write that down so then the next time you see them, you can encourage them. And maybe you need to do like Jonathan and leave something that you're doing right now to go and encourage them because you're their spiritual friend. All of this is the exercise of helping you clarify, how do I feel about these people as I think about them and I write about them? The third thing is then, if you get to that place and you say, yes, I still want to pursue this as a spiritual friendship, then I would say, talk with them. Have a define the relationship conversation with them. Just sit down and say, hey, can we formalize something about our relationship here? Jonathan and David called that a solemn pact or a covenant. Can we make an agreement together that we're gonna do life together in the, and the purpose of that doing life together is that we become mo more like Jesus together. And then the fourth thing that you do is that you commit to pray for them daily and with them at least weekly. And by the way, if you can't commit to that, you're not their friend. Uh, you're not their spiritual friend. If, if that seems too much work to pray for a person every day, then they're not on the list. And I don't think that I've ever met a person who doesn't have somebody that they would be able to pray for every day. Right? Okay, so you make that commitment. And that might be hard work for you because you need to practice prayer. This would be a great discipline leaning, leading you into the discipline of prayer. So um, we could go on and on and on talking more and more about spiritual disciplines. Uh, We're going to end our series here today. We could go on and on talking about the spiritual discipline of spiritual friendship, but we're going to end our conversation here today with one more thing that we're going to do. And I'm going to ask you to take a moment and pray. You probably have thought about a name, at least one name at some point during this sermon. I, I know when I hear sermons like this, there are people's names that come into my mind. I've even mentioned some of them during this sermon. So here's what I want you to do. There's two ways that I want to invite you to pray in this moment. Number one, uh, and, and you get to pick which one feels like the way you want to pray in this moment. The first way that you could pray is to take a moment to name your current friends before God. And as you're naming those friends before God, you would just ask God to bless them. And, and then ask God to use you to encourage them to become everything that God has, has called them to be in ways that honor God. So, so if you feel like, man, I've been thinking of names that feel I feel great about right now, and these are my spiritual friends, then name them before the Lord right now. You just go ahead and begin to pray. And the second way, if you're not comfortable with that, or if that feels challenging or, or difficult for you, if you struggle to find names of people that you would pray for, then here's what you would do. I want to invite you to take this moment of prayer to tell God that you're feeling lonely. Make that as a confession before God. God, today, right now, not as a condemnation, not as feeling guilty or shame, but recognizing that you created me to live in community. I confess to you I'm feeling lonely today. 
I struggle to name names of people that I would call spiritual friends. I would like to invite you to do something that seems counterintuitive. And in your prayer, thank God for the desire to have friends because he gave you that desire. And then ask God to place spiritual friendships in your life, meaning show me people that I can go be Jonathan for. And and I am praying for you as you pray that God will begin to put names of people in your mind that you can go be a Jonathan for as you pray. So take a moment now and, and pray. God, number one, we pray, naming the people that we call friends before you and thanking you for them and blessing them in the name of Jesus and praying encouragement. And number two, God, we pray for those of us who feel lonely. We pray confessing our loneliness before you, not feeling guilt or condemnation in that loneliness, but saying to you, God, we recognize you gave us this desire and we pray for friends. Take another moment, just right where you are, just continue to pray. God, hear our prayers, bless our friends, bless the friends that we don't have yet, bless the friends that we have today. Thank you, Lord. God, we thank you for the anointing that you've placed on this community to be a friendly and welcoming church. We thank you for that as a reality of who we are as a group of people. But we're so aware that even in the crowd of a community and a local church that we can be here and feel lonely even in the middle of other people. And so meet us in the places where we are lonely. God, we thank you for the friendships that we have. Enrich deepen and strengthen our spiritual friendships and teach us to practice the discipline of spiritual friendship intentionally so that we and our friends look more like you as we walk together. God, help us to build strong spiritual friendships that honor you and build your kingdom. And then finally, friends, I pray this blessing over you in the name of Jesus. May you be blessed with rich life-giving spiritual friendships. May your friends be a blessing to you and help you become everything God has planned for you to become. And may you be a blessing to your friends, helping them to become everything that God has planned for them to become. And together, may you and your friends bless the world. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.